This is the Find Your Forte podcast, episode eight. To explore music is not just to learn how to show off for somebody on a stage, but really beautiful music making teaches us something about what it means to be alive and what it means to be human. And that um, if as teachers we can um, share that insight with our students, then we have really given them a gift. You have the passion. You have the education. Now it's time for the inspiration. Get ready to step up to the podium with purpose. This is the Find Your Forte podcast with choral director and lifestyle entrepreneur, Ryan Guth. Hey, Choir Nation, I'm here with Dr. Andrew McGill, who is joining us today from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign School of Music as professor of conducting and director of choral activities. Dr. McGill currently leads three of North America's finest professional vocal ensembles, the Montreal Symphony Orchestra Chorus, the Carmel Bach Festival Chorale, and Fuma Sacra. He frequently prepares choirs for performances with the world's leading orchestras, including the Cleveland Orchestra, Dresden Philharmonic, Montreal Symphony, National Symphony, and New York Philharmonic. He made his debut conducting the Montreal Symphony Orchestra in December of 2014. Dr. McGill is particularly admired for his performances of Baroque choral works. He currently collaborates with pioneers in the field of historically informed performance and has conducted many leading period instrument orchestras. Dr. McGill has previously served as music director of the Masterwork Chorus and Orchestra, chorus master for the Spoleto Festival USA, and associate professor at Westminster Choir College, where he taught for 20 years. Recordings of choirs conducted or prepared by Dr. McGill may be heard on the EMI, Cantaloupe, Naxos, Albany, and CBC labels. Choir Nation, I've given you a little intro, but if you want Dr. McGill's full bio, head on over to his show notes page at www.ryanguth.com forward slash 008. All right, Dr. McGill, Choir Nation is ready. They're at the edge of their chairs, folders open, and looking your way. Are you ready to deliver the downbeat? Yes. Awesome. Very good. I was hoping you wouldn't say no. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's let's start back in the uh, in history a little bit here with the downbeat segment. And the downbeat segment uh, is where we find out about um, when you decided that you were going to dedicate your life to conducting or music. Was there a particular point? Well, there are a few couple points along the way. I think. Um, the first time I sort of realized that that I was a musician and that that was something that not everyone in the world was was one of my a pretty early memory from probably when I was around five years old, and um, I was with another group of kids about my age, and uh, they played a recording of a um, a beautiful folk song, the Sky Boat Song, and I remember being moved by this and 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 tearing up a little bit and being a little surprised as I looked around the room that not everyone was reacting in the same way because it seemed so so strong and so immediate to me. So that's the first time I sort of felt like maybe there was something, one of the things that was unique about me was my status as a musician. So I, I think I've sort of known I was a musician from almost my earliest memories. Um, coming to conducting was a little bit later. I was uh, a pianist and a violist in, in junior high and high school. My, my mother was very musical. And my two brothers were pretty musical, so the four of us would stand around the piano sight-reading hymns a lot. Um, uh, but it wasn't until high school that I really fell in love with um, choral music and with the human voice. And the, the combination of, of the beauty of the human voice and the possibility of combining 
beautiful words and poetry with musical gestures really sort of swept me off my feet. And it was at that point that I began to really think about being a conductor. Um, and by the time I was ready to go to college, I, I pretty much knew that uh, I was interested in exploring what it meant to be a choral conductor and what it meant to have a living making music with people. All right, well, let's back up to when you were five, because that, that seems like a pretty interesting story. In the Skyboat song, so that's a, that is a Scottish folk tune, mm-hmm. do, you, do you have a Scottish heritage? <laughs> a little bit, but I didn't know anything about that at the time. Um, I'm not sure that had anything to do with this particular situation. Okay. It was, um, what I recall was that, that somehow I understood the sense of longing for home that was expressed in the words was heightened and made um, more immediate by the tune that it was connected to. And it seemed to me that there was sort of a truth about human life and about our, our existence that was captured not just in, in words, but in, in this sort of symbolic sound. Um, and I remember that was what really touched me and also what surprised me a little bit that, that it didn't seem like everyone in the world reacted as immediately to that um, as those of us who are lucky enough to be musicians may. Okay, I got gotcha. you. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's just really, a, that's such a vivid memory for <coughs> five years old. I'm, I'm it's in- one of, I, I don't have a great memory for my childhood. I tend to live in the present and forget, you know, last year, what I, you know, I, I forget plots from books I've just read. Uh-huh. Um, I can see a movie a second time and still be surprised at the, at the plot twists. But, um, but clearly this was a really important thing for me because I do remember this, this event really vividly. It really... Um, was a defining moment for me somehow and sort of, uh, you know, coming to have and understand my own identity and how much of that was, was, was uh, tied to this idea of, of being a musician and being, um, being so blessed to be touched by musical symbolism. Well, I'm really glad that you, you remembered that one because that's, that's a really very touching memory. And, and uh, uh, let's just move forward for a little bit here and talk about um, sort of who were your influences growing up? I mean, you know, you, you, you had mentioned high school. Was there a particular teacher there? Was there um, a set of peers that you made music with? Absolutely. I was, I was really lucky. I grew up, um, uh, my parents were uh, um, very uh, idealistic and interested in changing the world for the better. My father was a doctor with a specialty in tropical medicine. So I grew up in uh, Western Africa, Sierra Leone, and Southeast Asia, Bangkok, Thailand. Um, and I think that meant that a couple things. One is it meant that I, I was very close to my family because um, often we were the only English speakers around. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also um, meant that when I came back to the States that in some ways I um, was seeing things for the first time. And there were a couple of really important influences for me uh, when we came back to the States. I moved, we moved to northern New Mexico, um, a fairly small rural town called Farmington. Uh, but in this small town, there was a spectacular uh, musician who taught choral music at the high school named John Peed, who uh, was a huge influence on me in terms of, of um, helping me understand early what the core of music making is, that it's not about, about some sort of um, technical perfection, but about a, a, an honest and, and really deep communication. Um, between performer and audience, between the performers themselves, and that that uh, I was incredibly lucky as one of the first really great musicians to to influence me. The the core of what he taught, in addition to just spectacular musicianship, was this sense that that um, to be a musician 
was to serve something greater than ourselves and that, that it wasn't something we did out of ego because we were good at it or because other people admired um, our skills in the field, but because it gave us an opportunity to really explore deeply what it means to be human um, and to share um, that experience with with anyone who's open to listening. And so so, so uh, John Pete, who later went on to do a doctorate and then uh, uh, taught at um, a college in Georgia for a while, uh, but spent most of his career as an as a incredibly influential high school choral teacher, was one of the really great influences on my life. The other one, I think, at that time was probably my piano teacher, a woman named Evelyn Rowe, who um, was just, you know, one of those teachers who... Um, understands you when you're, you know, when you're in junior high and need that desperately mm -hmm. and sort of recognizes the, the, the value of each individual student and somehow expresses it in such a way that the student can understand that and accept that in themselves. And that, um, that she similarly was a really important influence in, in, in validating how deeply, um, music made me feel and my reactions to it, that I wasn't the only one that was like that, that, that it was useful in a way, um, that could actually, transform people's lives in the way it had transformed mine, and that there was a sort of a sense of responsibility and privilege um, for those of us who are musicians, that we can share this uh, life-transforming thing that we do um, with the people we come in contact to. And just having those two examples were really, really important to me in the sort of pre-college days. Great. Now, moving forward into your college days, who do you feel like was an influence on you? Well, the most important influence on me as a core musician was Joseph Flummerfeld, who was the artistic director and principal conductor at Westminster Choir College, where I um, uh, came in 1987 to do a master's in, in conducting. And he's also episode 002 on, on Find Your Forte. I, I first met uh, Dr. Flummerfeld at a summer workshop I did at Westminster, led by Robert Shaw. Okay. And I had decided... I wanted to be a choral conductor. Robert Shaw was the most famous name I knew in that field. Right. <laughs> did an annual summer program at, at Westminster, and so I signed up and came. Was surrounded by about uh, 250 other choral professionals, um, all of whom were, well, almost all of whom were older than I was and more experienced than I was. And it was in some ways um, another life-changing experience just to see the, the incredible level of professionalism and... and um, technical prowess that, that was possible. Mm -hmm. And uh, while I was there, I, I met uh, Joseph Flummerfeld. He led a couple of rehearsals before Shaw came. And I knew pretty quickly that this was where I wanted to go study after I finished my undergrad degree. So I came to Westminster in 1987. I, I uh, did a master's there. Uh, continued on as uh, Joe's accompanist for symphonic choir for a couple of years. Um, he eventually hired me to, to lead the the opera choruses for the Spoleto Festival USA, of which he was one of the artistic directors. Um, I was lucky enough then to become his colleague on the faculty at Westminster. And so he's been, overshadows any other influence by a good margin. I, I, everything I will ever do as a musician owes a certain amount of, of uh, debt of gratitude to him. And I've been incredibly lucky to have been able to to be at one time his student and then later his assistant, after that his colleague, and now to, to um, consider him a really close and, and beloved friend um, has been one of the great blessings of my life. Now, I have to say, I remember a story about you and Frauke Hasemann that, mm -hmm. you, that you told about growing up in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. Can you can you reiterate that story? Because now, just to give Choir Nation a little bit of background, um, 
when I was at Westminster, Dr. McGill uh, was the, I guess you were the assistant director for Symphonic Choir. Is that, and then, and then you were also the director of Westminster Singers, Mm -hmm. which that I was in for the last year of its existence before you started Westminster Cantorai. That's right. Yeah. And I remember we always had some really great story times and there was a particular story about about Frauke Hassemann and her German accent and New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Can, can, can you, can you sure. give us that one? <laughs> Frauke, Frauke was Joe's assistant uh, for many years. For instance, when I was a student there, she was the assistant conductor for Symphonic Choir, um, was one of the other really important teachers I, I met there, uh, and one of the great human beings I've ever met. Maybe, you know, in an earthy and, 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 in tangible way, the closest thing I may have ever met to a saint. Um, but Fraco one day, in my first year at Westminster, I think she was trying to make me um, feel at home, and she asked about uh, the city in which I had gone to college. And she said, so, how do you spell Albuquerque? <laughs> I just think that's great. I just think that's great. Uh, I'll never forget her voice or her saying that. She was a really lovely woman. And she drove a gigantic vehicle, didn't she? Didn't she drive, a, like, a land yacht or something? I don't remember that, but it would make sense. She was a, she was, uh, you know, she must have been six feet or more tall, and and uh, was a woman. It was a very imposing woman physically, although the most gentle spirit, and you know, the sort of, um, um, in some ways, what Nancy Ann Perella was to later generations at Westminster, sort of the the mother figure and the one that that, uh, um, you know, restored confidence and brought comfort uh, when we needed it. Well, I felt very privileged to have worked with Nancy Ann, but I unfortunately did not ever get to work with, with Frauke. But uh, I've heard many, many stories, and, and uh, I'm sure I'll hear more as uh, this podcast goes on with uh, other, other guests as well. She's but, pretty colorful. I'm sure you will. <laughs> all right. I want to move to our, our next question, which uh, has to do with a story when maybe things didn't go as planned. Maybe if you look back, uh, you could consider it a failure, but it's something that you learned from, something that you, there was definitely takeaways. Um, would you bring us to that moment and, and tell us a, a story about when maybe things didn't go the way you would ha- had expected? Sure. Um, the story I'm thinking of must have been my first year of my master's. <coughs> and um, I was hired by um, a church in northern New Jersey to conduct uh, the Christmas portion of Messiah and um, some excerpts from the Bach Christmas Oratorio. And I hadn't been in New Jersey very long and uh, was a little shell-shocked by the level of talent I was suddenly surrounded by. Mm -hmm. Up to that moment, I'd usually been the most talented musician in the room, and suddenly I was at this place where, you know, there were so many of them, I wondered if I had anything to bring. Um, And so this... this, uh, this engagement was was sort of important to me emotionally because it, I, I sort of decided it was a validation of, of my calling as a conductor, and so uh, uh, the, the the disastrous part of the story was when I got to the first rehearsal, actually the only rehearsal we were doing one rehearsal uh, with an orchestra there. Um, two things became apparent really quickly. One is that um, my score didn't match the parts that the players were playing for from at all. Oh. Um, I assume they were probably, you know, in, in retrospect, they were playing from some um, 19th century arrangement of Messiah that had lots of additional wind parts, even more than the Mozart version. So there are, you know, versions that, that uh, Robert Franz did and, and a man named Goosens did for, 
for Beecham, the conductor Beecham. I'm not sure which one it was, but every time I sort of waved my arms, people played that I didn't expect, and people that I thought were going to play weren't didn't. Um, and I just felt so ineffectual. And this was exacerbated by the fact that I hadn't realized that it was um, uh, a Korean church and that no one in the room would speak English. Oh, I certainly didn't speak Korean. And so I, and I had very little time to put it together. Um, I was sort of overwhelmed by the fact that, that I, I didn't really know what to do because the, the notes on my score didn't match the notes that were in there. Um, I don't really remember how the performance went. I was so um, traumatized. traumatized by that <laughs> rehearsal. Um, but it was a really important learning experience for me. Um, and the things that I think that were really valuable from that, number one was that um, it was at a time in my life when I didn't really know what it meant to be prepared for a rehearsal. That I sort of thought, as long as I'm reasonably talented and sort of know how the music goes, that's all I need. And it was uh, at that point that I realized how much um, detail it was possible to know. Um, you know, it was, it was from that point on that I became interested in marking the orchestral parts that I was going to use for orchestral performances I do myself. So that, partly so that I could see what their parts looked like, make sure they matched my score. But also it began to really open up to me how much I could put myself in the shoes of, say, that first flute player. And what his or her part looks like the information they do and don't have compared to what I have in front of me sort of helped me to know what they needed from me and have made me a more efficient and, and um, generous conductor, I think. Um, it also really exposed to me something that was painful but really important, which was that at that time in my life, I was more interested in being impressive than I was in being prepared. And that... Um, that that I had spent a lot of emotional energy sort of telling myself how great it was I'd been hired to do this job, but not nearly enough emotional energy getting ready to do the best job I could for the people that I should be serving in that moment, which are the musicians in front of me and eventually the audience that will join us. Mm -hmm. um, and so although it's a painful experience and, and, a, and a memory I, I don't like to bring to mind too often, <laughs> um, it turned out, I think, to be a really important step for me in, in terms of um, some things that, that I, I think were more successful later because of the mistakes that I made early on. All right. Well, I, I think could definitely pull some pull some takeaways that I want to summarize for Choir Nation out of this story. Um, one of the things you said early on, and I think is something that's uh, probably really important for Choir Nation to keep in mind, is you know you had said that you know coming in to do your masters and coming into New Jersey, you know you were always the most talented one in the room. You know previously, and now you're surrounded by all these these incredible musicians. And, you know, one of the quotes, I'm not sure who, who we, we can attribute it to, but one of the quotes that I, I say regularly is, 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 if you're the smartest person in the, in the room, you're in the wrong room, mm -hmm. you know? And so that's, a, that's probably one of those jumping out of your comfort zone kind of, kind of experiences. And, and I know a lot of, you know, music conservatory students, you know, obviously I know my experience at Westminster, but I'm sure many other music conservatories, you know, you're getting... And I think Amanda Quist even said it in the last interview, you know, you're you're coming to a place where everybody was the smartest one in the room, you know, mm -hmm. in their in their hometown, um, which brings to brings us to the, the point of, you know, talent over preparation is that, you know, can you can you ride your talent or do you have to eventually start to work, <laughs> you know, and and uh, um 
and looking, you know, work in such in such detail that you gain perspective of the people that you're you're conducting, that you're putting the music first, that you're putting your ego second, you're putting your, the music first, you're putting the people you're serving first, you're putting your audience first. And, you know, it feels a whole lot better to be prepared, too. I mean, I think we'd probably, we'd probably, you know, you know, use less anti-anxiety medication if we were, if we were just prepared, you know, we wouldn't have to worry about band-aiding it. You could just do the work and, and feel good about it, you know, at the end of the day. So, um, that's a great story. That's a really great story. And I, and you really pulled some awesome takeaways from that. So, so thank you. Um, let's move to the, uh, the last question of the downbeat segment, which is your proudest musical moment to date. You know, I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I'm not sure I could say that I have a single one, um, because I've been lucky enough to have so many blessings in my musical life, that there are, there are certain things that I am um, have been extraordinarily blessed to have done and have, and have been important to me. Things like um, my debut this last December with the Montreal Symphony was, you know, to conduct a major symphony orchestra in North America is a pretty thrilling thing. Oh, really? Um, the, the, when I made my Carnegie Hall debut, that was a thrilling thing. But it's interesting, those things are not the things I remember with the most fondness or really the most pride. That um, the times when I feel like I have really been the musician I aspire to be and the kind of human being I want to be have usually been situations where I've been making music with with friends in small situations and something we have done together um, has made me feel like I have I've helped empower um, someone to a musical insight they might not have had without me so I think a lot of it you know it's it's um, uh, it's not always what the world thinks of as success Mm -hmm. that are the things that really feed us and that really you know when I look back and think about the most joyful times in my musical life I'm not sure how many people noticed them, but boy, they were so deeply rewarding and nourishing for me. Um, you know, performing often, uh, often with a group full of soccer, which is mostly a group of people that just went to grad school with me, and we love making music together. That uh, you know, we did a St. Matthew Passion together with you know just about 20 singers and 20 players a few years ago. That really felt honest and right, and and um, and and so many incredibly talented musicians on that stage, but somehow I felt like I was able to, to listen to them in a way that, that uh, helped them be their best. And that's a pretty, that's a pretty spectacular thing that we get to do. Um, but related a little bit to what we're saying about, you know, the, the, my disaster story, it seems to me that for me, a lot of what I am continuing to learn and have learned as a conductor and hopefully will continue to mature um, in this way is, is to, to let go more and more of the need to be um, seen as acceptable or exceptional or brilliant by by the outside world, and more and more, just a deep and sort of quieter joy in 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 the privilege of getting to make music. That um, the work itself is the greatest reward, um, more than the the trappings that people think of as the markers of success. Mm-hmm. Those are nice to have. I mean, I remember that when I made my Carnegie Hall debut. I finally got the feeling that my father stopped worrying about whether I was going to be a starving artist. <laughs> so I said, okay, if he's if he's if he's performed in a building I've heard of, he'll be all right, and that was wonderful. Um, but the you know, and, as, and and I'm very proud of those performances I did in that beautiful hall. But um, but it wasn't that it wasn't that part of it that 
that was the most filling. It was it was a part. It was a part. It was a smaller, more intimate feeling that yeah, you had with your father then. Not exactly. necessarily the and big mountaintop way, I mean, moment. I think that most of the performances I did in Carnegie Hall were, the, were with a masterwork chorus. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's interesting, you know, when people come to audition for the masterwork chorus, probably the number one reason they came was because they knew we performed in Carnegie every year and they wanted to do that. Right. And, and I understand that, and it was thrilling to perform in Carnegie. But the reason why those performances were so thrilling to me actually had to do with the way I was able to connect with the members of the choir and the way that we were able to elevate... Um, our musicianship for those three hours of performing Messiah. Um, and the building helped us to do that by giving us sort of a, a sacred space in which everyone was expecting something beautiful to happen. But it wasn't the building in the end that made it beautiful. It was the connection between people. And, um, and that's, a, that's a comforting thing, I think, as we, as we step into the you know, crazily competitive world of, of performance, that... Um, you know, it's not the it's not the things that that uh, think that that the world thinks make make us successful. Right. That really make us happy. Well, it's almost it's almost like if you talk to a popular <laughs> popular musical artist, you know, they would say, you know, you'd ask them what their favorite song is, and it's probably not the song that made them the most money. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's one of those similar kind of experiences. All right, well, let's let's go to the Your Forte segment. And the Your Forte segment is the second segment where you get to share with us something that you feel like you as a conductor do particularly well. And, um, and uh, you know, you have the ability to, to share um, some of those tips and tricks uh, on, on, on what, whatever that is. So what is, what is that forte? Yeah, I think there. I mean, this is an, another question I've been thinking about since I got your list of questions, and it's been they've been really wonderful, thought-provoking sorts of things. Um, and I guess there, there are sort of a few things that came to mind. I guess one of them is um, I think I have a strength in in um, in in knowing how interesting it is to ask questions. That I think I have a musical curiosity. Um, that is strong and means that um, I'm always looking for what else I can learn from a piece of music. What is it that may, that's essential in any given piece of music? And I, for me, that's also one of the great joys. I love the fact that my career is sort of divided between being a performer, which is incredibly important to me and, and a big part of who I am, mm-hmm. but another equally important side of me is the teacher. And that I think... Um, the successes I've had as a teacher have mostly been um, not from giving people answers, but helping them to understand how to ask the right questions. Uh, and I love the fact that this means that I, in, in the cases where I feel like I've been the most successful, my students have gone on to be self, um, they've gone on to continue to, to, to grow without needing me to be there. That I've helped unlock their own sense of of the mystery and wonder of the world around them, particularly in music, and to help guide them into thinking about um, how every time we approach a piece of music, we can go deeper than we know. Um, I think that's the best thing you can ask for. I mean, to be able to set your students free and let them be independent without you and still be, uh, you know, incredible learners and great musicians uh, Mm -hmm. without you having to be there. I think there's nothing better to ask for than that. It's interesting, when I moved to the University of Illinois, a colleague who I admire very much and who, who, I, who I think does terrific work sort of said offhandedly that um, it must be exciting to be able to go to a place where I could um, 
I'll, I'll paraphrase a little bit, where I could sort of create uh, little conductors in my own image. And I, I sort of thought to myself, that's not at all what I'm interested in. <laughs> that um, what really interests me is the way that a good teacher unlocks each individual for him or herself. I, I see this also in, in great voice teachers. There are certain great voice teachers that have a a kind of a sound that they believe is really beautiful and they sort of help everyone approach that sound. Mm -hmm. But I find the even more interesting and gifted teachers are the ones who somehow instinctively know how unique each one of their students is going to sound. And while there are principles that are going to be true for every every student they have in terms of free, open singing, um, you know, technical things that will be true for every, every singer they have about how to breathe and how to uh, create space in which to resonate, but that the goal is not to create the same singer and over and over again, but to help unlock the individual artistry of each person they work with. Um, and I think for us as choral conductors, it's especially easy, easy for us to forget that because we, we make music in a corporate way. But I think what makes it really exciting and beautiful is that if we're doing our job right, we're empowering each individual member of our choir to be fully engaged as an artist in his or her own right. Um, rather than taking away their individuality and and imposing something on them as if they were a giant inanimate object, you know they're not uh, they're not an instrument we play. They're spirits and and uh, minds that we interact with and um, and inspire if we're doing our job well. Yeah, you know I think I, have you read Steel Like an Artist by Austin Kleon? I have not. I don't know anything about it. I think. Oh, okay. Something I should read. Yes, you should. I'm going to. I'm going to put it on the show notes uh, you know, for Choir Nation, right. and uh, you know, because it, it has to do with with you know not necessarily making a facsimile of 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 people's work, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, but but more about how to how to smartly gather um, bits of inspiration from mm-hmm. all o- all over to make your own. To make your own person, your own artist, yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I think I, I listen. I have experience with, you know, having multiple voice teachers, and I've had some voice teachers that just wanted to make me a, a copy of them, and um, that's. I don't think that was what was most beneficial for me, you know, and um, so I could definitely agree with you that that's, you know, being able to teach people to dig deep and ask the right questions and it's almost like therapy it's like discovering it's like self-discovery you know it's like if you're able to teach people to ask the right questions of themselves they'll you know they'll learn um Mm -hmm. what's best for them and they'll learn more about themselves than they even than they knew i think so i mean i think that one of the things that just defines us as human beings is that we're creative creative creatures i think this may be what um what you know, Genesis is talking about when it talks about uh, human beings being made in God's image. At that point in the in the biblical story, the only thing God had done is create something. Mm-hmm. He's created the the world, and I think the one of the ways in which we are somehow in God's divine image is in that we are creative creatures, and that means I think that the act of creation for us is an act of self exploration, and that it certainly has been so for me. That I think. Um, to explore music is not just to learn how to show off for somebody on a stage, but really beautiful music making teaches us something about what it means to be alive and what it means to be human. And that um, if as teachers we can um, share that insight with our students, then we have really given them a gift. Um, I mean, I think of the teachers, I've, I've had principally people like Joseph Lummerfeld that, that taught that to me, that the act of, of vulnerability to a piece of music teaches us who we can be 
in our lives and um, teaches us what it means to be aware of the experiences we have as human beings. That's an unbelievably rich gift. I wish every school administrator could hear you say that right now. Because, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't matter what level you teach, you know, whether it's college or, or the, you know, grammar school, high school or whatever. You know, it's there is something about that experience of, of singing together or being a musician in whatever mm-hmm. whatever way that, um, I don't know, it, yeah, it teaches, you, it teaches you how to be human. It teaches you how to... Uh, to be in a group of, of people that are all completely different than you, but accept each and every one of them for what they bring to the table. And mm-hmm. I had a group of um, I had a group of nineteen eighth graders uh, a few years ago that sang insane pieces of music. I mean, they did. We just. Uh, one day they said to me, Ryan, uh, actually they didn't call me Ryan, they called me Mr. Guth. <laughs> they said, Mr. Guth, um, remember that song you played for us that one day? And I said, oh, what was that? You know, it was uh, that Eric Whitaker song. I said, what? I said, oh, a boy and a girl. And they said, yeah, can we sing that? And I was like, whoa, 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 okay. Like, are you serious? Like, you're in eighth grade. Like, no, really. And, and, um, I said, all right, fine, I'll throw up some practice tracks online. I'll give you the music. You can go home and, and, and check it out. And they came back. That was a Friday. They came back on Monday, and they had they had learned it. Wow. And they had done such an amazing job. We, we, you know, we, we had put it together. We had recorded it. And after it was all done, we were sitting there listening to it. And obviously, they were all in tears, and which is amazing for eighth graders. you know. And, mm-hmm. um, and they looked around the room, and... They, they sort of acknowledged that, that, and I think even one of them said, you know, um, Eddie over there is always late to class. This one over here, Alex always says something goofy. Uh, you know, so-and-so over here, you know, you know uh, maybe, um, oh, this one has perfect pitch. He's an amazing pianist. And this one over here brings this to the table and brings that to the table. And this is, but in like, even the things, even the things that you would look at as, um, as negative, you know, this person's always late to class. But you know what? That choir wouldn't be the same without that kid being late to class every day. That's like part of, it's just like part of creating this large group that's so um, special. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to think of the way to the the way to say it, but. Um, I think you're doing a good job. Okay. Well, good. Okay. Good. I mean, I'm just trying to be as eloquent as you are, and I don't think I'm going to be able to, <laughs> to do well that. Well done, Mr. Guth. Well done. Yes, but but it, it's just so amazing. Like, it doesn't matter what group you you teach. They they each have their own character, mm-hmm. and um, they each have their own reasons for being there. They have their own why that they're there, and and sometimes you don't even know what that is, and. Um, but but just the fact that they're there and that you're there and that you're investing this time and being vulnerable and open uh, allows them to meet that why inside. And I don't know, it's just it is such a cool thing. And I just wish I could play this f- for every school administrator that thinks it's okay to uh, slice mu- people's music programs in, in, into little pieces because uh, it's it's. And it's also, it's like funny because you didn't say the word standardized, but I know we have a lot of public school choral directors listening who are dealing with all that sort of standardization of everything right now. Mm-hmm. And, but what you did say about, you know, asking questions and these experiences, 
it helps conductors and teachers, educators stay away <laughs> from becoming a standardized product. Right. And we want to, we want to have high standards. We want to know where our students are. Measuring where they really are is important, but but in the end, true education is about empowering them as intellectual, physical, spiritual beings um, to you know grow and continue to grow after they're no longer with us. And and it's it's awfully limiting to see education as being teaching to a specific test or to a particular job skill um, or to a market that they can then be hireable from. That I, you know, all those things are valuable and part of what we do. But the most important thing we do is we, you know, we we give people the opportunity to discover who they are and uh, the tools to continue to explore that through their lives. Right, and and those, you know, those standardized test scores, they would meet those benchmarks probably even better if they would just let the kids sing in choir and become and discover who they are and have that time to unwind and. Um, Rather than being so tightly wound all all of the time, but we've all seen that in when when students who have been somehow misfits in the world at large find their way in choir, and how it opens their lives to success in other areas. All right, welcome to my life. <laughs> yeah, what a what a you know what a beautiful thing we get that we get to continue to pass that on. Right, right, right. It's the one honestly the ones that follow suit are not. Are not always the ones that are the ones that are going to make an impact, you know, in the world. The ones that the ones that just say yes to everything are not the ones that are going to make the impact in the world. It's the ones who are who are a little on the outside, or the ones who are just a little bit weird, a little bit crazy, mm-hmm. and the ones who need you most, yep. you know, as a choral director, are, are the ones who I think are going to make such an outstanding impact in the world. It's true. It's true that you know the. You know, having taught conducting at a really fine institution for a long time, I've seen a lot of students, very talented students, come through programs I've been associated with and then go into the world to teach. And the ones who came in as the most well-packaged at the beginning often stay exactly where they were. Yep. Some of the ones who are a little bit of a mess coming in, when they find their footing, oh, then you know, they become incredibly gifted and generous teachers and musicians. The world is better for their presence in it. Great. Well, I, listen. I think I want to end that segment there. I think I think that's a nice way to sort of tie it up in a little bow. So um, let's go to the last segment, which is the Acelerando segment. And these questions are designed just to be short, thirty-second, one-minute answers, if mm-hmm. that. And we're just going to go from question to question. So, um, what project are you most excited about right now? Uh, two things, I think. One is the University of Illinois. This is, I've just finished my first year here. Um, it Congrats. Was the, thank you. It was, it's the oldest doctoral program in choral conducting in North America and probably the most influential historically. The list of alumni is really extraordinary. People like Joseph Lommerfeld, Anton Armstrong, Craig Johnson, Andre Thomas, Doreen Rao. I mean, the list is incredible. And to be part of leading that now and sort of bringing it into a new era is incredibly exciting. Uh, and the other thing I'd say is that uh, the for the, my work with the Montreal Symphony. Uh, there's been a work commissioned for my choir, the Montreal Symphony Chorus, uh, by Christoph Penderecki, and that uh, he'll come and conduct my choir oh, wow. in a new piece in September, and that's pretty exciting. And how old is he at this point? He's getting he up there, He's huh? about 80. Okay. Maybe even past. So, uh, but he's agreed wow. to write this piece and come conduct it, and, you know, what an honor for 
me and Mike Wire. That is amazing. Well, hey, listen, Helen Kemp is 97 and she just she, she just got a commission. <laughs> so that's amazing. Oh, and she's um, Find Your Forte, episode four, just FYI, everybody. Uh, all right. So um, what advice do you have for your younger self? Care less about what other people think. Do what you think is right. Um, listen and don't, don't become too self-conscious in, in... I mean, I think part of this has to do with, as conductors, one of the reasons we all go into this profession is because we have extra attuned antennae for what, how room is reacting to us. Mm-hmm. You know, to put it sort of crassly, we make our livings manipulating people emotionally. <laughs> that, that we're, we're especially attuned to how people are emotionally. And I think it's a curse of many, many choral conductors, and it's certainly true for me, that uh, we waste way too much time wondering what people are thinking about us and trying to make them like us when in the end we are who we are and that means we're pretty likable and what we really need to do is just get to the work at hand so that's my advice to me listen uh, i'm in the music entrepreneur world and and in the business world you know we have a saying if you sell to everyone you sell to no one and Mm -hmm. i think that's very very true and you need to sort of pick your niche be who you are and go for it laser focus Mm -hmm. All right. In your opinion, what do you believe makes an outstanding conductor or educator? Command of the field. That I think you have to be a really, in order to be a great music educator, you need to be a great musician. Um, And so really understanding how music works, having worked hard to be able to hear everything that that you're conducting, uh, understanding the vocal mechanism, understanding the historical context of pieces. But then I think the thing that lifts you from a good to an outstanding or or truly great music educator is... um, a sense of generosity towards the students that you serve. All right. Walk us through your morning routine. I am not a morning person. <laughs> I, sleep, I, I, I have a, um, a late night routine that's very productive. But my morning routine is sleep as late as possible, get up, uh, get dressed, showered, breakfast as fast as I can, and get to school and, and teach. You want to give us a little bit about your, your late evening routine? Sure. My late evening I, I am I have had a, I have a long history of sleeping in two shifts. Oh, okay. I usually wake up around three in the morning for between 45 minutes and an hour. And that's usually my most productive hour of the day. Oh, wow. Okay. That's that's the hour that I use to study music sometimes. Um, uh, I'm often especially creative at that time. Uh, I feel very sort of unblocked and free flowing. Um, And so, uh, and I, I, it partly has to do with that there's no agenda at that time of the night. Nobody can call and ask me to do something particularly. That's true. I don't have an agenda of what I need to get done in the next hour. And so it gives me a certain amount of freedom and flexibility to dream and to, to experiment and to play. And uh, for me, that's really an important part of, um, of being a continuing, uh, continually growing musician. And I think as we get more successful and busier, it's easier to have, have things, all our time eaten up by mundane tasks which have to be done but that there needs to be a time when we still have sort of rhapsody and and play and improvisation in our life and for me that's usually the middle of the night well i'm going to get some sleep scientists on that because uh i want to find out whether that's a healthy alternative to what i've been doing (laughs) i have uh i in the last two or three years i've read several times so it's currently sort of a hip thing to write about that apparently historically there were periods of time when when uh People slept sort of in two shifts. They talked about first sleep and second sleep. Oh. And so I remember reading that Handel perhaps functioned in this way. 
and then he had a time in the middle of the night when he got up and did something. So I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm going to hold on to it as if it were for now because it works for me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if, if Handel could do it, then then I exactly. signed me up and too. I can too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Um, what was your most favorite concert that you've attended? Uh, wow. Okay, you got to pick one. You got to pick one. Yeah, I know that's so hard because I've heard so much great music. You want to go something recent? We can go recent. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess um, uh, recently I heard a just really deeply moving performance of uh, John Lennon Gardner and the Monteverdi Choir um, uh, doing Monteverdi. It was just so motivated by the text and so responsive to the words and so full of joy in the music making that it really recharged my battery. Awesome. What is your favorite personal growth or music book? Oh, there's so many here, too. I'm currently reading another book by Marilyn Robinson called uh, Lila. It's fiction, but she's just one of the most beautiful writers I know. And I always find them to be deeply thoughtful about human life. Um, so certainly her three books I'd put on that list. And I guess um, specifically sort of um, personal growth, I would choose either The Four Quartets by T.S. Eliot or Walking on Water by Madeline Lengel. Okay, well, we're going to put links to all of those books on your show notes. So if anybody in Choir Nation is interested in buying them, um, if they want to support the podcast, they can buy them straight from those links uh, on the show notes at find your, uh, see ryanguth.com forward slash 008. All right, and let's think about, uh, let's think about this, this last one. This is the biggie. If you had only one concert left in your lifetime, a choir with limitless ability and access to a sold-out concert venue of your choosing, where would your final concert be, and what would be the last piece on that program? It would be in the Maison Symphonique, the new concert hall in Montreal, that I think is just a spectacular acoustic room. And there would be only one be, there would only be one piece on the program. Okay. I think it'd be the St. Matthew Passion. All right. Awesome. Uh, let's give the listeners some parting words of encouragement, and uh, we'll follow it up with the best way to connect with you moving forward. Um, I mean, I guess for me, uh, it's sort of the same encouragement I gave to myself as a young artist is what I'd pass on to um, those that are listening, is that, that uh, um, don't worry about being liked you're going to be liked if you just do generous, beautiful work. Um, and I guess the last thing I would say is that in my conducting classes, uh, one of my favorite things to say is that I only know three things that are absolutely true as a musician, and they are listen, breathe, and stand up straight. <laughs> Very good. And now how can we connect with you moving forward? Probably the easiest thing to do is I'm, I'm on Facebook, and you can reach me via email at the University of Illinois, amagilladillinois.edu. And... Um, my, uh, my doctoral students here at the University of Illinois have convinced me that um, the university and I should have a, a more active presence in the social media world. Okay. So over the summer, be looking for um, a blog that will appear at the University of Illinois and for some increased um, Twitter activity as well. Awesome. Well, I will get the Facebook and the email up on the show notes and let me know when you have... When you have your your active Twitter profile and blog, and we'll we'll add it to that for future listeners too. I'll so, do that. Great. All right, I know Choir Nation is even more ready to step up to the podium with purpose. So thank you so much for being my guest today on Find Your Forte. 
My pleasure, Ryan. Thank you for listening to Find Your Forte with Ryan Guth. As always, join Ryan online at www.ryanguth.com for detailed show notes and discussions on every episode. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. Until next time, be amazing. Hey you, I know you're still there listening. Thank you. I want to take an opportunity to invite you to like our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash findyourforte, and also invite you to leave a review on iTunes. Uh, That helps us get more exposure. So leave a review, like us on Facebook, tell a friend or 17 friends, and we will see you next time on Find Your Forte, Episode 9.